हिंदू खतरे में है हिंदूज आर इन डेंजर वेल या दैट्स ट्रू danger of an increasingly warmer himalayas not so slowly melting away danger of toxicity frothing on the waters of ma ganga dangers of over extraction of mines and minerals that in shape and form are much like the rocks and stones we have worshiped for centuries danger of no more forests left for our gods to be exiled to climate change is quite literally an existential threat so yes hindus are in danger but scarier still is the idea of us as a nation as a civilization failing to understand what hinduism is okay maybe it's not scarier than climate change but it's still something that should gravely concern us why well i'm glad you asked <laughs> great question by the way today's episode is an attempt to understand how those of us in modern india as descendants of this undeniably intricate and fascinating civilization are slowly forgetting what our culture is or even worse being made to remember only those parts that are convenient to those wielding power we've forgotten or was never been told about how inextricably linked respect for nature is in ancient indian philosophy about the sanctity of mountains rivers and forests about how humankind is but a small fragment part of a much greater infinitely complex whole this ancient philosophy is is so distinct so diverse from our current consumer capitalist culture to me it increasingly seems that our traditional roots are much better equipped at dealing with climate change than the many branches of government and corporations put together hindu khatre mein hai but what does it mean to be hindu Some of us these days proclaim ourselves to be the officially licensed retail outlets of Hinduism, doling out our own certificates of yes, you are a true Hindu. To those people, I ask, you know, your, your typical boomer chacha who graduated first in his class at WhatsApp University, sir, to you, I ask, how much of a Hindu are you? The very essence of Indian philosophy talks about relinquishing our worldly desires, conquering our mind, attaining moksha. When was the last time you did that? Asli Hindu ho to don't dream of cash and let's start planning your sanyas. <laughs> But you won't do that and in many ways Hinduism is okay with that. All accounts of Vedic knowledge have constantly reaffirmed the position of agnosticism deeply entrenched in our philosophy. Yo asya daksha parame vyomhansato anga ved yadi vanaved. Pretty cool, right? <laughs> but that sort of agnosticism has given way to more militant forms of belief where some of us will reject hinduism in its entirety in its vast complexity simply because we want no association with the most vile factions of hinduism and some of us well we are those vile factions the problem as i see it is that whenever we fail to engage with the real tenets with the real teachings of hinduism we let the loudest noises co-opt this entire philosophy and that is a dangerous prospect hindu khatre mein hai but who is a hindu there are no accounts of the word hindu in the vedas or the bhagavad gita or really any sacred text in fact one of the first uses of the word was by a portuguese missionary named sebastio manrique 
who in 1649 quoted a Mughal official as saying, quote, How did you dare in a district of Hindus kill a living thing? Unquote. That's, let me just repeat, that's a Portuguese missionary quoting a Mughal official. I'm just gonna let that be there. No joke. I'm just I'm just gonna let that be there. You guys make of that what you will. But we are a long way away from Sebastio Manrique, from the good old days when we had joy, when we had fun, when we had seasons in the Sanatan Dharm. We're in a weird place right now where it seems that some of us have been prescribed to, along with their daily dinner, take two tablets of offense at some seemingly innocuous reference to Hinduism. It's amusing to think of how many people will file FIRs over a TV show named Tandav, but watch silently as the Himalayas melt away. The Himalayas, a place so special to ancient Hindu texts, is often regarded as the place Lord Shiva went to attain moksha. Which is why it gives me great pleasure to announce that my guest this week spent a great deal of her youth living in the Himalayas, studying Advaitic philosophy, understanding what it means to be a Hindu. Joining us this week, we have Dr. Meera Bendur, one of the most incredible scholars of that unique but undeniably useful intersection of environmental philosophy and traditional Indian philosophy. Dr. Meera has obtained a doctoral degree focused in environmental philosophy and also authored a book titled Nature in Indian Philosophy and Culture, which makes her the perfect guess to help us understand the intricacies of intersectionality of Indian philosophy, ecology and climate solutions, and maybe provide a little light to this confused nation, this lost civilization, this Instagram generation. I'm not here to teach you about Hinduism, I'm here to learn. Learn about what it means to be living in harmony with nature. Learn why Hindus have worshipped nature. Learn about the importance of rituals in combating ecological disharmony. Learn why Dr. Meera's guru once said, Heenan Dushyate Hindu. And learn about how Indian philosophy might just provide the answer to solving climate change in this week's What on Earth. You know, it, philosophy is very boring when you look at it in the uh, academic sense. There will be this old person, mostly male, uh, with uh, with uh, serious face, telling us that we should not be, uh, we should get rid of our desires and yeah, we shouldn't be having too much of, fun. Not be having fun, and so that didn't. That's why probably I didn't take philosophy as an academic discipline because I didn't find them. Uh, interesting enough because I'm a very vibrant, you know, um, uh, fun loving and uh, really engaging in the world. I don't like to be in dusty books. I like to be under a tree. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it was a little bit of a, a difficult journey in the beginning. But when I grew serious about Indian philosophy, I actually went off and lived in the Himalayas. For, I, I was a very dedicated uh, student, you must say. So for seven years, I've actually went and studied Indian philosophy in its traditional sense as a sadhvi, I went and took off sannyas in the Himalayas. Something that I, I'm so surprised when I look back, like how did I do it, you know? Mm -hmm. But at 21, after my graduation, I went and lived in the Himalayas with a group of uh, dedicated people. Uh, I'm not at liberty to reveal who they are, but we all sat together and studied all the texts in the original. We studied Indian philosophy. 
basically from the Advaita perspective and also from the Yoga Vashishta Ramayana. It's a kind of a more um, open kind of studying. We did meditation. We lived like Robinson Crusoe in a in a Govind Pashu Vihar, which is like a jungle in the upper reaches of the Himalayas. So I farmed, uh, I milked cows, I um, gathered fodder for winter, I cut wood and you know, wow. basically lived a very rural, uh, almost a Robinson, Robinson Crusoe kind of life in that seven years. And I think what happened was in some strange way, I think that was a transformation. It was like Indian philosophy and living, you cannot say, I can almost say it's a thorough experience, right? Mm -hmm. So he just lived by a lake and his mom supplied him food, but I had to cook my own rotis. So getting in touch with direct nature and encounter with the weather, encounter with the snow. And uh, I literally can now, uh, if I go outside, I can tell you whether it's going to rain or not, because there's a certain kind of bodily engagement with nature. And so you can see that I'm living in this nature, encountering environment all the time. At the same time, I'm also reading Indian philosophy, which is particularly the Upanishads, which are again, very much in connection with nature. There's not a chapter in an Upanishad which doesn't talk about the sun, moon, stars, air and earth, right? So this, this, this kind of fusion, uh, I think it transformed me a great deal. And what also I can say is that it was not easy because, um, you know, one of the things that is the most difficult thing about nature or even about Indian philosophies both require a lot of, you know, work, mehnat. Uh, so the lazy part of me, you know, is, uh, is like wanting to just, you know, read the translation, right? Somebody's already given the translation or look at a YouTube video and understand, <laughs> not read the original, not struggle yeah. with a word because it doesn't seem like that's the translation of it. And, uh, again, with nature also, it's easy to, you know, uh, give an RG to the, um, government to give you an electric line and then you can put your, uh, you know, you can add your gas and your uh, electric heater instead of going to the jungle and collecting dead wood for your fire and then getting up in the morning and cleaning the chula. So in some sense, this direct living with the environment and Indian philosophy, when I look back at it, has got me this persistence, uh, patience, and then it has also brought me to this position where there is a, there's an incredible uh, effort that you don't give up, you know? So in that sense, in my, whether I'm writing a paper or whether I'm uh, struggling with learning a new software, I think the base core of me has transformed. I am not lazy anymore. I think that if, if there's an environmental, for example, recently environmental law came or you know, the, they brought the report out. It's like if it's 46 pages, I'm not sitting there and think, oh my God, I wish somebody will uh, read the whole thing and give me a summary. No, I'm actually able to read through the 46 pages because I've done the 21 volumes of Mahabharata, what I had in original. Oh, so oh. 46 pages is nothing. Yeah. So this is the, I struggled with the words, struggled with the interpretation, being very critical of it, looking through it. Uh, deeply. So depth and uh, patience and uh, effort. I think these three things really transform within. And I think these are some core things that I learned from in my journey over the time. 
you know, nature waits to produce its flowers and so does Indian philosophy. The more uh, older you get, the more the depth increases, though the text is the same. That is uh, incredibly fascinating. And, uh, you know, your, your uh, uh, stay in the Himalayas, I'm sure, would make by itself a very interesting episode that I'm sure I will <laughs> ask from you one day. But uh, a lot of your uh, writings has focused on sanctity of a variety of things. It could be a sanctity of place. It could be a sanctity of space and, uh, you know, a, a, a variety of other things which we'll get into. To me, however, a, a, a primary question that requires answering is what is sacred and how do we uh, c- conclude that a particular thing is uh, sacred? Because uh, as you have said in your writings, quote, it is the sacred that is preeminently real. Uh, and I find that fascinating. So talk to us a little bit about what Indian philosophy regards as being sacred. So um, when I was uh, basically when I started doing like real academic research on whatever I had learned, like uh, in the beginning, the perspective was that of a believer. So a believer's perspective is that you kind of go in, your questions are only to seek the truth. You're a truth seeker. But a later critical perspective from the academics is to actually delve a little more deeply into the language that we use when we're talking about these things. So at one level, uh, the idea of sanctity and sacred is deeply connected to the idea of religion. So religion tells us certain places are sacred, right? So this is the place, um, you know, you go on top of um, um, Jaisalmer and they'll show you one well and say Arjuna shot an arrow for Krishna and this well is like a water well, which is uh, giving water from then on. It might be a natural spring, but it is not the spring that is sacred in the sense as much as it is sacred in the minds of the people and the local inhabitants who, who are relating to that area as sacred. And this is what Ifu Thwang calls in his idea as placemaking. Because placemaking means that you designate you say this is a designated place that I make sacred. So in making sacred, there are two ways of making sacred. Okay, One is to temporarily make sacred. Like for instance, people uh, want to do a puja in a house or they want to uh, conduct a puja. Uh, they will sprinkle the entire house with Ganga Jal and then uh, say chant mantras and then they will wipe the whole place. I know some people who are very traditional even take like... Uh, wipe it with cow urine and then put gobar on the floor and then uh, construct the Agni Kund or the uh, sacrificial altar. Uh, Some people draw, for example, we can draw Rangoli uh, and uh, make it sacred. Uh, You mark off or you make sure it's made sacred by you taking off your shoes. So people take off their shoes to indicate that they're entering a sacred house, right? So in various ways, you can temporarily make places sacred. So this is like a this is like allotting classroom, right? The other way of sacred is to recognize it as sacred, and there are there are sometimes stories that recognize it as sacred, right? And these stories, as as we know, they're called sthala puranas. That is, sthala means place, and puranas means the stories. These narratives uh, are genealogy stories. Sometimes they're hagiography. They may not be the truth. They may be the truth. That is not our question. Because the idea is not here to find whether really Rama was walking there. 
the idea is that the people decided and believed that rama was walking there so like when you are setting up your house you said this is the place where my study is going to be is it the truth that the study should be there and the architect designed it for the study to be there no it's because i designated so designated sacred though it is not designated sacred by marking out an area or designated story uh, sacred by telling a story about it so people will vaguely point and say that rock is the rock where krishna was sitting or this rock they still do it today for example uh, in my old uh, uh, street in maleshwaram uh, one day we, me and my grandma long ago were walking and she said you know that house i said yeah what's about it you know gandhi ji stayed here when he came here to bangalore and i'm like so see that that kind of pointing and telling a story about it continues to today you know yahan pe sharukh khan ka in fact if you go to kunur they will take you on a tour where uh, all the famous rajnikanth and movies were filmed so he'll point out either rajnikanth or kushbu ka film hua tha this is where amitabh bachchan had come you know so this kind of story making is common and when you do it about something sacred something to do with non human or superhuman or supernatural entities then that area becomes sacred and that natural feature sometimes is a different kind of a sacred because it's not temporary it's permanent like say the ganga river or the place where the kaveri is burning or the sacred cave of amarnath or uh, a particular rock that is shaped like uh, you know two sisters or like ganesha uh, 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 even a tree that has got some sort of a goddess face in it becomes like a sacred landscape so so but that is made sacred because people point and tell a story about it and sometimes what happens is people find things and then they'll say oh this is sacred because i found something here so if there's a place where you dig and suddenly you find a statue of a god that whole area becomes sacred and it's it's in across all religions okay uh, so in in hinduism it's much more because we have more icons i mean we may find a ganesha or a snake or a lakshmi or a saligrama or or a tulsi plant or a footstep we have many more symbols to find whereas some religions only have one symbol to find so it's very harder for them to have that means uh, look at the fountain at lourdes right that is mother mary's sacred uh, fountain so they also have this point and sacred uh, tell story about it kind of say sanctity in that sense therefore for me is uh, a deep belief that connects the humans to their place they're able to designate something uh in in their environment that means something more to them rather than just a kind of uh, mere functional area sacred is functional but sacred is also beyond functional and it's something that uh, people relate to as uh, uh, touching the spirit right marcelliade has written a lot about this idea of uh, the sacred but i'm not going there but i'm just saying it from my experience it's always about people telling uh, stories that mean something to them and they're not just telling the stories uh, to make it famous they're telling the stories from the depths of their heart uh, which is very intuitive and very very uh, very personal in some sense personal and uh, co- collective in a community sort of so i what i found particularly interesting uh, from what you said was this idea that individuals decide or individual uh, experience is given such importance that it is then 
uh, alleviate it to the position of being uh, mythological or, or being sanctimonious. Because in today's world that we live in, individual uh, experiences are giving very little weight when we try to figure out what a fact is, right? This clear dichotomy between fact and opinion is continuously drawn to us that, okay, you can have your own opinion, but there are these certain set of facts. But now if, if, if we look at uh, the Indian philosophy and the way the Puranas are, what, the, what they essentially are, are just a collection of human experiences. But they are still given that reverence. They are still given that, that uh, position in society that it's not merely discarded as being, oh, it's just one particular person's viewpoint. It's just one particular person's opinion. It doesn't mean anything. But it is, in fact, given a great deal of, of reverence. Uh, and, and to me, in today's world where, you know, they, they call it the post-truth world, um, I think this becomes an increasingly uh, uh, incredible uh, idea and incredibly uh, just... It's so fascinating that people could uh, be at at one point of time think like this that they uh, they don't need some sort of scientific experiment that is uh, you know reproduced multiple times for for them to then believe the veracity of the conclusion of that experiment. Uh, they the the reliance on human word or, or reliance on human experience was given a greater degree of. Uh, importance, I, I think, early on, and, and now we've started to sort of move away from that. What I would like your uh, inputs on is, again, again, coming back to this idea of of what is sacred, right? Because so I I travel to work every day, and uh, I I cross a bridge which uh, uh, above the rivers Mura and Mutha in Pune. Every day, whenever I'm I'm crossing it, more often than not, I will, you know, see someone toss a bag of flowers, a plastic bag full of flowers into the river. And me being the person I am, I stop right there and I, I will try to explain to them earlier. I would try, I would try to yell at them, but now I've, I've grown a little more soft. Uh, and now I try to explain to them that, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you throwing your plastic into the river? We are, we are polluting our river day in day out is not something that's unseen you can see the river it's right in front of you. you can see how dirty it is why do you still do it and they simply are just they, the the single answer that i've gotten every time is that oh it's god's flowers these are uh, you know these are sacred flowers so why should i not these aren't going to pollute these are sacred these are gods this is what god wants me to do this is not going to harm the river in any way so what in one way uh, this sanctity of a particular thing, be it temporary sanctity, be it permanent sanctity, this sanctity in some way is now becoming at odds uh, with um, our current need of society, which is environmental conservation. How do you reconcile the two, the, the sanctity of a particular object versus the needs of today? Uh, so, uh, first of all, I'd uh, like to point, uh, take a little bit about uh, the notions of truth that you were talking about because that really interested me. Yeah. Because, you know, the Indian word for uh, philosophy is darshana. And darshana means perspective. Wow. So, you're talking about post-truth and the interesting thing about the way Indian philosophy develops as compared to the Western philosophy where you have... Uh, epistemology and the idea of truth and fact and opinion as different is justified true belief, right? That's truth. That means every truth has to have justification. 
But in Indian philosophy, we have pramana, which is most evidence-based idea, right? So one of the evidences is also your experience of it. So if I experience, let us say, the sacred, then my experience is valid enough to say that I know. Okay, it is not necessary for me to um, justify it in some sort of uh, scientific way. So for the Indians, particularly from the perspective of Indian philosophy, scientific truth is only one of the truths. So look at the way Indian philosophy deals with truth, right? So pura jagat jo hai, hamare saamne dikh raha hai, what we are seeing in front of us, the entire world is supposed to be maya or illusory. So the, the very computer screen in front of me is not a fact uh, coming from the Advaita perspective. The fact is it's all Brahman. So dealing with philosophies that are actually talking about the unreality of the world itself as a truth, then correspondence theory of truth could be uh, what the Buddhists say, there is a Vyavaharika Satya, there is a truth of pragmatism. Because if I have to drink water, I have to uh, think that it is water and drink it. And there is a Paramarthika Satya, which is the ultimate truth, the truth of reality. So in that sense, you already have an idea of truth, which is non-descriptive, right? But the interesting thing here is, the older philosophers also had truth in a very different way. And that truth is the truth we've heard in the stories of Harish Chandra, which connects to your idea of the pool and others, right? Of the flowers being thrown and the thing. The older version of truth is vachan, is a, is a promise. It's why Rama went to the, um, because his mother gave the word. So giving the word is the truth. It is not that if there is a phone in front of me and I describe it saying there is a phone in front of me, that is a descriptive truth and it is regarded as a stupid truth by the Indian philosophers. It's like, what's great in just having something outside and you just say truth. You're not, you're not, you're not investing any of your energy or your, your, you're not making a commitment to it. So making a commitment, making your words into truth, what we call vachan nibhana, that is the ultimate truth that when you look at our Puranas and our stories that our grandmom told us, it's all about giving your word, right? You say something and make it happen. It's almost like a goal-oriented program, right? You say, I will come to office at nine o'clock and then you will die to reach office at nine o'clock because you've given your word. It doesn't matter what, nothing will stop. You will break the, you know, like Hanumanji, you will lift the entire Sanjeevani and you will bring it. Okay, we've always been taught this, but we've forgotten the significance of that. So the idea is therefore, the idea of truth is you say something and you fulfill on it. And so that idea of truth comes to action. It is not a mere description. So what has happened is we have not only, not only are these people who are throwing the flowers divorced, divorced from the idea of their own religion and their own practices, they are also divorced from the idea of the truth. So they divorced. So what has happened is they've allowed commercialization and capitalism to take over the sacred duty. So if you were, let us say, 50 years ago in your own house, right, in a village, what will your puja be like? You would grow your own flowers. And after you put the flowers, after the flowers are done, you'll go and throw them in a corner in your own garden. You'll bury them. If you had banana leaves and banana skin, you will give them to your cow to eat. 
right no food is wasted because i when i used to be in the himalayas every leftover food or spoiled food would be mixed with the cow's food and it will drink it up very happily used to love like leftover dal and stuff like that. so we are not living an actual good capitalist life nor are we living in a rural life we are like kind kind of displaced people with displaced awareness you know where we are only thinking about the sacred in a very a capitalist way ki jitna phool dalo utna bhagwan please ho jaye bhagwan has actually said give me one leaf that's more than enough ek tulsi kaafi hai so i think this is more about show off about ego about capitalism yeah you know god didn't come and say give me plastic cover mein bandhe hue and then we use thermocol and plastic flowers and plastic what's the use of putting a plastic rangoli you tell me if you put rangoli in rice powder the ants will eat and you you're actually giving something to the environment so that's the whole point everything has become commercialized instant yeah. instant instant as i said that instant thing is that whole laziness absolutely you know absolutely uh, not only have things become instant but things have become performative also like it, it becomes more about doing some being seen doing something rather than the the reason for doing it or what you know the the true essence of that particular thing is that is lost and uh, you know it becomes more about a performance uh, than uh, really living it but uh, we'll we'll come to that what i i really want to flag off for my listeners what i thought was really fascinating was that uh, darshana it, it means philosophy uh, is is basically the perspective of an individual you know and and that is what is regarded as philosophy now in contrast to western philosophy this is i would say diametrically opposite because if we look at you know the works of someone like an immanuel kant with his synthetic a priori which is or you know other individuals who have come after him as well like right up until i would say the post structuralists of the of the 1990s uh, it was all about arriving at this absolute truth of life you know what is the meaning of life what is the one correct epistemology what are the one correct ethics uh, and uh, you know eastern philosophy or indian philosophy is just directly contradictory to that in many ways in that it it each individual perspective is what is real and each individual experience is what is absolute and i find that just incredibly fascinating and uh, yeah maybe maybe because our uh, our roots are so diametrically opposite to the west uh, that now we find ourselves as you rightly put it as a displaced people because our roots say one thing and our you know the rest of society or rather what we are exposed to is saying something completely different like capitalism has uh, seeped into like you know like correctly pointed out into every aspect of human life so it's very difficult to separate uh the real from the uh fake or, or the real from the performance inauthentic yeah inauthentic if you enjoyed the interview and want to learn more about indian philosophy about environmental philosophy check out part 2 of episode 12 with dr meera bender